Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danton, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Len Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strohlight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. All right, all right. Good morning to all of you, Cafe Bitcoiners. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Aunt, Dom Bay, Jacob, Wade, everybody else in the audience, all the loyal listeners. If you're new, uh, we play that song at the beginning of every show. Highly encourage you to go look up the words and read the words to that song. It's uh, it's mind blowing. <laughs> Welcome back, Ant. Thank you. Thank you. I see you guys held it down. Yeah, we were all sad. We missed you. Oh, I'm really sure. <laughs> I had to explain you to my sisters yesterday, Aunt. Oh, I'm sure that went well. You were we the technical have... guy. That's the other technical guy who does other technical things and has other technical knowledge. All the technicals. <laughs> we did have like a, the wicked show yesterday. Was it yesterday? I don't know. We, yes. we had a moment where the scale was up, came up and she was like, I have a wicked question. And then that was KSD. It was, it was great. All right. Uh, you're listening to cafe Bitcoin. This is episode 438. Shout outs to our sponsors on fountain. Nostra Ness, our mission for this show is to provide the signal in a sea of noise, teach the other 7 billion people on this planet why there is hope because of this bright orange future that we call Bitcoin today. Again, we're going to try and discuss near-perfect energy arbitrage. I've been meaning to do that for three different episodes now. We never actually get to it because the content is so dang good. The questions are good. The discussions are good. Hopefully we get that today. Uh, there's also a bunch of nonsense that the lizards are up to that I think needs to be highlighted. We shine lights on lizards and lizards doing lizard things. And it's uh, I hope it helps you guys. Peter? Speaking of lizards, my banking saga continued. So, you know, yesterday I was talking about having trouble transferring money and my account being frozen, et cetera, et cetera. I thought, well, I'll just go into the bank, get out cash, and then I'll go make the deposit into my friend's account, right? So I put my tweet up in the nest. I'm just going to, it's real quick. I'm just going to read it. I said, friend needed financial support, went to their bank with cash to deposit. Tell her, we don't take cash. Me, what? Tell her, sorry. Me, manager? Manager, we don't take cash. Random patron looks at me and mouths, what the fuck? Me, thank God. I literally said this. I said, thank God for Bitcoin. I walked out of the place. My friend, thanks for the BTC. You said that in a bank, Peter? What? You said that in a bank, Peter? Yeah. 
You're on Hell the list. Yeah. You're, you're on the, you're list. On the <laughs> list. That's like that's like saying bomb I, on a plane. I looked at this lady, this manager. You, I looked at her. I was like, "What the <laughs> fuck is cash for?" She goes, "Well, you can go buy stuff." I said, "You're a bank. You don't take cash." Nope. Thank God for Bitcoin. I fucking walked out. I just I couldn't believe it. You're all on a list. Every single one of you. It's okay. Some it's okay, some Peter. List. I got on the list a long time ago. I was on a phone call with my bank a long time ago, and it was just like a lowly like customer support person and i was like new in bitcoin like brand new and like you know feeling it and i was like this is why y'all are going down you see this is why bitcoin's gonna take y'all out and so i'm sure i'm on the list as well <laughs> uh, okay later today second half of the show we've got eric Kaysen joining us looking forward to that that dude He's one of my favorites. He's an extremely passionate Bitcoiner and a deep thinker, in my opinion. He says some stuff that is, I mean, there's a lot of edgy people in Bitcoin that are that willing to say and call out lizard nonsense. Eric pulls no punches, man. This dude, when he's laying it down, I'm like looking around the room thinking, are any of these guys that are in here fed? Because he's definitely on the list. And so is everybody in this room. Oh, I'm sure we've had feds in this room for a long time now. Yeah, probably. I mean, these are all recorded, right? So, yeah, I guess they can just play it back. Yep, yep, pretty much. Good morning. They won't get the emojis, though. Yeah, screw them. I wish these guys would do something illegal. Mike Hobart, good morning. Mickey Koss, good morning. Terrence Yang, good morning. Oh, by the way, congratulations, Terrence. Terrence was uh, on Bloomberg again. Dang. Thank you, thank you. He's a regular now. Whenever they want to know something about Bitcoin, oh, they call Terrence Yang. Got lucky. Your star's rising, Terrence. And Terrence oh, is like, oh my God. And Terrence is like, hang on one second. I gotta, I gotta hang on one second. I gotta park this dim sum cart so I can go get into a nice background place and do my interview with you guys. So, due to my exactly due to my crappy, um, or just something's not great with bases for my audio, so it doesn't do noise suppression. So, but it's motivating me to take a walk. So, instead of um, you guys listening to the piano music. From the hotel again. Dude, as long as you don't, as long as you don't walk into that ballet center again, uh, Terrence. <laughs> I think that was Beetlejuice. I did not record. Uh, Terrence, do you mind, if you don't mind me asking, since I didn't see the Bloomberg uh, appearance, um, what did they ask you about? Did they ask you about any of your opinions on the Binance situation, or is it just strictly Bitcoin and price? A little bit Binance. Uh, it was price. Not as much price this time. I think, um, I, I'm not sure why, but uh, it was more about uh, ETF kind of timing. And we got into spot versus futures. Uh, the uh, SEC so lost badly signal. against Grayscale. Sorry? So actual signal then. That's good. Allegedly. Yeah. No, they asked good questions. That's good questions. And then talked about um, some tax stuff. Yeah, stuff like that. Terrence, you were you were telling them how it's gonna go down this year. That's interesting. How did they react to that? 
I did point out that 75% of quote-unquote experts surveyed said that a Bitcoin ETF will be approved by year-end, which I don't agree with. What? So, uh, yeah. Who are these experts? I, listen, the these, writers at these, crypto, these crypto people, right? Because sometimes our stars do align a little bit with the crypto people short-term. So their PR machine is formidable. So I think they just go around and random crypto experts opine on Bitcoin ETF timing based on their chat GBT law degrees or whatever. Here's a big wrench, Terrence, and you have a law degree, so you can tell me if this is possible. This may throw a wrench into the, 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 some of the bets on the side chains. Um, what is it possible for the SEC to um, approve Grayscale, but with a go live date that's next year or far out or, or some kind of like ambiguous, like, yeah, it's approved conditionally with this. And then people, well, it wasn't approved. It was approved. That I don't know, but typically they just kind of approve, delay or deny. And then when they approve, you just have to do all the paperwork. It's like they're, they're always approved with conditions, everything the government does or, or lawyers do. And now you're talking about government lawyers. So every approval is like if you meet the you know, registration requirements, blah, 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 you can do it. Go ahead and file, file the paperwork and you know, give us comfort that you're compliant. Yeah, but they can attach um, conditions like, okay, so you're saying you're doing the surveillance sharing agreement. We are only doing this if that actually gets signed. Is you know not clear that that signed it. Blah blah blah. They might add some details. I think that's possible. I don't actually know that much about ETFs approvals, but that should be how it goes. Just kind of based on all the other stuff that government government regulators tend to do yeah because that's that's my new thing is is this is backed by no for the listeners no legal knowledge whatsoever zero but if they can find a way to approve grayscales put a timing on it that somehow screws them and lets blackrock whoever's first in line for the etf go live first that's what i see them doing. yeah that that's possible i feel like th they're not that explicit like okay so a couple things one if you're a gensler political animal bitcoiner allegedly you would probably want to do what um delay approval just because you know hurts to lose three to zero in the dc court of appeals to grayscale and you would maybe choose to prove in batches or you know, just first would be one of the big four. It doesn't have to be BlackRock, right? Because the public perception, at least in some corners of the universe, uh, they tend to think that BlackRock is super evil because they're so big. Totally misunderstanding how asset managers work. But anyway, you might pick one of the big four. The new one being Franklin Templeton, 1.4 trillion AUM. I think Invesco is like 1.6. Fidelity and BlackRock are orders of magnitude. So one of those big four, maybe do it in batches. Politically, you might do, I hate to say it, Kathy Wood for Mark because she's a woman and 
she's very vocal. And a lot of people like her. She has a big following. So maybe you don't want to look sexist and then maybe do like a third one. But Grayscale may get it. They may not. Like they're, I have to say their lawyer, their chief legal officer or whatever, I heard him on a podcast. He's very, very, very good. Very respectful of the SEC. Very smart. I think politically and kind of legally smart guy. But yeah, I don't think they, they're going to say something like, hey, you're approved, but you move to the back of the line or you can't launch until June or something. Having said all that, I do think uh, Bitcoin, spot Bitcoin ETF gets approved and launches Q2, Q3 next year. Before that seems tough. All right, moving on. Saw a really cool quote today. This is from the Bitcoin therapist at the BTC therapist on Twitter. He goes, stack as much Bitcoin as possible. Live each day as if you are poor. Project your energy into the future. This is the way to a life of abundance. I liked it. It's good. Well, and that's like the the sad thing, in my opinion, that makes that quote really, really powerful is that the whole fiat system has completely destroyed that what should be a very natural and common sense uh, strategy to just generating future wealth, right? Like when we all went through school, we were all led to believe that like that's kind of like how money works. Like you work to earn value and then park the excess away, continue to live below your means, and then you can save up to do something with it. But then you learn about currency debasement and taxes, and then you realize that there's not enough left over as far as purchasing power in order to actually enact that strategy. So it's, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to devalue your, your love of the, the quote. It's just, it's sad that we're at a, at a position in society and economics to where that quote is so heavily loved because it's not a reality for most people. Yeah, it's bizarre. It's um, the way that fiat has changed human behavior and not in a good way is really, uh, it's really perverse. It's, it's perverted the, the incentives of human beings and you see it all around us. Shout out to Dylan LeClaire in the audience, throwing you an invite. You're welcome to come up, as always. All right, let's get into this discussion that we've been kind of, uh, for many different reasons, not been having. There is a video of Saifedean having a conversation with Jordan Peterson. And Jordan Peterson is like, you can see light bulbs going on with this guy. Like, he's figuring certain things out. And he's realizing the implications of what Bitcoin might actually mean at scale, like for the human race. And it's super interesting to me. So, uh, Jacob, if you're ready, send it. 
But with Bitcoin, you just need an internet connection. You take the Bitcoin miners to where that energy is, and then you can monetize that energy and turn it into Bitcoin. It's magic. So, so, so what's the what's the net effect of that on the price of electricity worldwide? Is that is that is that deflationary with regards to electricity cost? I think so. I think this is this is a point that I make in the fiat stand, which is that you know we've had fiat subsidize all these dysfunctional forms of energy over the last fifty years that have led to the grid becoming unreliable. And we have Bitcoin, like the vigilante savior that it is, coming in and providing a global subsidy for anybody who can make electricity at a cheap rate to monetize that. And I think well, not only at a global subsidy, but but so but so interesting because not only you could go to where the energy is cheap with virtual certainty that you're going to make more and more money as the value of the Bitcoin increases by. By investing there, assuming you assume that the value of Bitcoin is going to continually increase, which is a logical presupposition if it's if it's as stable as as is claimed, and it's finite in the way that you're describing, and increasingly widely accepted by vast numbers of people, so it's also an investment that's likely to increase in value over time rather than decrease. So take some of the uncertainty out of investing in cheap electricity generating processes that are geographically isolated. That's, I just can't believe that's true. It's, it's amazing that I, I, I think I must be misunderstanding because it seems like you can move the value of the electricity, electricity magically without any of the problems of transportation. Yes, exactly. Wow, that's really something. Like that idea that you can monetize energy production in, in in areas that wouldn't be able to ship the electricity to market. That's a, that's absolutely mind-boggling. It'll take me like five years to think that through. It's so, and it seems to completely contradict the idea that Bitcoin is a waste of, in, of, of the world's resources, right? It's, it's a, it's a, it's a complete opposite. If that, if this monetization idea is actually true. So that to me is an incredibly mind blowing thing. Like this is some one of the things about Bitcoin that is the most interesting thing to me. I love talking about this. I I think along the lines of probably Sailor in regards to this. There's a ton of people who are like, well, Bitcoin doesn't store energy. Bitcoin is not energy, yada, yada. But I completely freaking disagree with that. I, I, I think that Bitcoin does store energy and it does so in a way that changes the entire nature of how human beings can and will interact with each other. I'll dig into why more in a minute, but let's, let's discuss. Go ahead, Mike. So, um, so I actually, uh, Alex with our Bitcoin veterans, like just like back channel chat, I dropped in a sneak peek for the article that we'll be publishing on Bitcoin magazine here soon. Um, where I actually, I was actually, I dug into some of the research with regards to, uh, infrastructure and work output and GDP with regards to like uh, countries um, and energy usage for, you know, just figuring out how important energy is and energy infrastructure is to a country's uh, efficiency and being able to earn a, a, a positive GDP. And like one sad point is that there's not a whole lot of research out there, which is a glaringly bad problem, in my opinion, with regards to this discussion. But um, the now, the interesting thing with Jordan Peterson and really all of us that have had our mind blown, minds blown with like the 
realization that you can use Bitcoin mining to capture waste energy uh, and improve efficiencies there, that's just the low hanging fruit, in my opinion, because once you do that, you can kind of smoothen out the demand curve a little bit. You can fill in the gaps, right? Like what, like, so if you go to ERCOT's dashboard, you can see just how demand ebbs and flows from uh, reaching a bottom, like kind of like in the middle, middle of the night to early morning and then peaking up in midday and late, like mid afternoon and then kind of just bouncing in between there. Bitcoin mining, uh, theoretically, could fill that gap and just smoothen it out to where it's a consistent, just like nice flowing, just flat line or like barely budging curve. But you can take that farther to where, and cause like that's important for already um, developed nations, right? That's really important for already developed nations like the U S um, and then to the, the clip that you guys just played, it's also very important for currently developing nations to be able to, earn an income off geographically stressed energy sources and then be able to use that income, those revenues to justify improving infrastructure and maintenance and all that. But for developed nations, we're, we're looking at a situation where already established energy generation capacity or infrastructure now has a justification to overproduce and essentially build up that kind of like rolling supply of active electrons that are available that I kind of discussed a couple months ago, I think with you guys, to the point of where you can establish a circular, like, like think of it like a circularly flowing river of electrons that are just like waiting to be kind of like re-diverted back onto the grid. And Bitcoin mining is providing the banks for that river. That's where things get really, really cool because then you can justify building out energy infrastructure way beyond what capacity or demand is right now. And then you can allow society to catch up. And then there, there's no, there's no destruction of the economics of energy generation. It's like, it's there, there when I, I keep saying it, I'm going to keep saying it there, like this innovation that with this innovation and methodology is going to allow for a legitimate renaissance in energy generation and like an energy capture. It's going to be pretty wild for the next couple of decades. I was just going to say, um, I think when people have pushed back against this, you know, Bitcoin is energy clip that Sailor often says, it's it's really just the the autists in our community who are not very happy about using energy in that way because they're thinking of energy as, you know, the, the actual physics definition of energy and not just this kind of <laughs> overall idea of monetary energy or, you know, whatever you want to kind of think of it as. And then, then everyone else is just thinking of it as like, you know, storing like our value our money, our efforts, right? And we think of that as energy as well, but it's not in the literal physics definition sense. So, I mean, I think that's really the only pushback against this, you know, Bitcoin is energy thing. Yeah, but I mean, in line of thinking is like, you're in the matrix. Get better internet, and hear me now? No, no, <laughs> no, we cannot. That's one of my favorite things to do is to t tell one of the most technically savvy guys on a panel to get better internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do you have me? 
we have you loud and clear. Okay, so by that line of thinking, uh, you know, I collect comic books too, and some of them have value quite a bit, actually. So is that, are those comic books energy also? Right, yeah. I mean, so again... (laughs) Mm-hmm. In a way, they are. Yeah. See now, Alex, Alex, the one up on the stage who's not an autist is going to say yes, and then the rest of us will maybe say no. I mean, well, it's subjective, right? Like all things, like no value Alex, is subjective. It's not. Energy is not subjective. It's it, okay. It's energy is not subjective, but that's value used in a very specific value, way. <laughs> value is I, subjective. I think. I think. I think you know, less so much objective or subjective and more like, um, like skips to, you know, it's, it's hard when you think of energy, you think of like, all right, I'm burning, I'm burning something. It's creating energy that's powering a locomotive direct energy. But in the comic book scenario, there is energy of all types that go into making it. And yes, it's indirect because you go, well, that's not direct energy. Um, but there were people making the comic books. There was machinery, printing, et cetera. There is some type of energy capture in the comic yeah, but you're books. talking about spent energy. That energy is accounted for. It's not stored. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about value. Okay, let me ask you guys a question. For those of you who are comic book collectors, what is the most valuable known comic book today? Collector's value. U.S. dollar terms. I think Ant is probably. The I don't know off the top of my it. head. It moves around quite a bit. Yes. Yes. Action comics. Spider Man One. I mean, what's Spider? What's Superman's first appearance worth? Action Comics. A guess. Is it more than fifty dollars? Is it more than a hundred dollars? Yes. Is it more than five thousand dollars? Is it yes. less than a hundred thousand dollars? Uh, depending. No. All right. So, I mean, there's some comic books apparently that people are willing to pay a ton of US dollars for. So, Fair? I did uh Alex a yes. quick search as of September 20th, well, today, 2023, the most valuable comic book to date is Action Comics number 1 which sold for Did I lose the room when I said yes? Yes, which sold for 3.25 million dollars in April 2021. Oh my god. Okay, so this is my point. Completely subjective. Why? I would never spend $3.52 million on a fucking comic book. No no offense meant to comic book collectors. It's insane to me. That is entirely subjective. The same could be applied to, to fine art. Like there are there are pieces of art that are worth tens of millions of dollars in that market. I would never spend that money, but that's subjective. Now, question, just because I wouldn't spend the money to to buy those things, does that mean they're any less saleable for that amount of money? Do they store that value or do they not? Do wealthy people give their art back or just give it away? And I'm not talking about it at a charity auction or something like that. I'm talking about like people who store their value in these things. Are they just going to give it away? No, they don't. Why? Because it's storing value. This is my point. You, hey, there's also some direct, and I know you were saying spent energy, et cetera, but if you gathered a mountain of less valuable comic books other than the one for 3.25 and you burned them, you will get some direct energy from there for sure. <laughs> it's not worth that much, though. All right, so Isn't the point... Inherent value? 
the point is, is that human beings, right, will agree or disagree on the value of things. And you can store the, the, the reason I look at it this way. Let's break it down to first principles this is the reason I look at it. Human beings from the dawn of man have always been trying to affect their environment to create things that make their lives better. Right. We started rubbing sticks together, making fires. Chipping stones so that we can affix it to spears or bows and arrows and all that kind of stuff. Like everything we've ever done is we're trying to exert energy on the environment, our labor, our physical labor to create a situation that makes our lives better. That's what we do all day, every single day as human beings. And wealth is, in my opinion, what is created up above and beyond the basic necessities required for life. You need food. You need shelter, you need clothes on your back, protection from the elements, you need some modicum of safety. Once those things are all achieved, everything else above that, arguably, is wealth. But how do you get it? You, you expend your labor, you create things, hopefully, that some other human wants and is willing to give you something of value for, and we store it in stuff. Corn stores value. Corn in silos has value. Gold has value. Dollars have value. I mean, all of this, all of these things are storing value. That's my point. And if you can take energy on one side of the planet when it's coming from a geothermal vent or from hydro or from whatever, and you mine Bitcoin with it, you're storing it. And then you can send that to the other side of the planet you can convert it into local currency and you can hire a bunch of construction workers and buy materials and build a freaking skyscraper. Yes? No. I mean, I can play with that. I can play along with that line of thinking, right? I mean, you can take it to uh, mine it on one side and then go use it to buy in literally like buy energy on the other side. Okay. Like I can see storing in that way, but then, I mean, it's like, I, I don't know what makes Bitcoin special versus like any other asset in that case, in that example. Yeah, I mean, well, you can, all you can mine other it. Reasons. You, you can mine it, uh, you know, with energy and then you can send your coins to an address that nobody has a private keys to. Then what? Did you just lose all the energy or, I mean, what's going on there? I mean, if you can't... Wicked. <laughs> If That's the only energy sink, right? Sailor's argument is, is that Bitcoin is the only system we've ever seen with no entropy. And I guess that would be the only entropy. But wait, but it actually wait, say that. Again. Okay, it's 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 a sink, right? So Sailor's argument, if I'm understanding it correctly, is that there's no entropy. I mean, it's a way to store energy with no entropy, no 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 loss. So yeah, in no your leakage. example, there's no leakage, right? So in your example, wicked. If you burnt, effectively burnt a bunch of Bitcoin by sending it to an address that is a dead end, gets lost or whatever, that does that not make the, the Bitcoin in existence more valuable potentially? So the, so the energy then graphs on the rest of the network, is that you're saying? <laughs> Supply goes down. Does the value go up? Does it, does it really though? Because what if someone you know, figures out the private keys just by chance in the future? Well, now we're getting real. Okay, now it is getting close to Halloween. You're reaching. Time to to spook people a little. (laughs) 
Yeah, I, w- I was just going to say, though, one thing unique about Bitcoin, which which Mike pointed out, a lot of these things were comparing to stored energy, leave this system. And by the way of miners being connected to the grid, um, you know, one could point out that Bitcoin is very much like continuously in the system, uh, even though it's, you know, somewhat separate that it's within that system. Right. Because with stored energy. It has to reside or remain in the power supply system, you know, strictly strict, if you're thinking about it like that. Well, this is the this is the hard part with having really any in-depth conversation about the aspects of Bitcoin is that it's it can be a bunch of these things and one of these things all at once, right? Because it's <laughs> it can be a medium of exchange, it can be a store of value, it can be a justification for energy generation. It can be a bearer asset. Like this is something that we all talk about, like ad nauseum guys. It's like Bitcoin is the amalgamation of multiple different mechanisms that the human species has never seen all together all at once. So like trying to pin it down to one thing is really just a really dumb like way of thought. Like, good luck guys. You're going to keep having these circular arguments literally until the end of time. I mean, I think one of the things that's really interesting about this idea of mining Bitcoin using stranded energy, because, I mean, it's not a new idea to, like, try to use stranded energy for doing stuff, right? Like, you know, we, we, we put, like, aluminum plants next to stranded energy or, or, or kind of, like, energy sources that are stable. We put you know, data centers next to stranded energy and all these things. But the difference with Bitcoin is that it's actually a liquid market. So you can much easier, you have much easier time converting that energy into something that you can actually then use as money, right? Or use, you know, to fucking, uh, or to monetize, right? I mean, if you're doing like a data center, then there's a whole extra step of finding a customer to use that data center or to, you know, do xyz with it but with bitcoin you're literally just getting you're just getting money for the energy that you're expending right and you can do whatever you want with that money on the other side well and not to mention wicked obviously to that point is like if you're going to use a data center then you're going to be doing compute for some other company and there's always the risk of that company's board or ceo getting into some stupid sex scandal or doing something ridiculously foolish as far as their decision making goes and then that business goes away for that uh, that energy provider, and then what? Like, they have to like go elsewhere to look for it. It's like that's where you just turn to Bitcoin. There's no board of directors and no CEO that can screw this up and just use the perpetual demand in the highly competitive like hash rate market and just keep parking away revenue while you're continuing to generate energy and expand infrastructure. Yeah, but what if what if Satoshi shows back up and then and then you know. Goes through the back door and yeah, and, and and then and then uh, and then Jesus returns to like the land of the living again, and all of you know rapture is upon us. Like, there's always the hypothetical that you could just set up forever and into the future. No, I think the correct answer is that it wouldn't matter. Or that that too, yeah. Wade Hogue, jump in here. Or don't. Paging Dr. Wade. <laughs> so I think it's energy just because you can change your 
change the state of any kind of matter or energy. So if you change the state of your energy to a monetary energy, you can transact for energy. You can buy energy for your home. You can buy a car. It's all just one form of energy or another. Exactly. And Alex, I think like what you were saying, Sailor talks about referring to the fact that energy, it's never lost. It goes somewhere. Um, that is something that's a scientific law. Mm. Okay. Well, that's, Wait, that's that, now this is the part where you, now this is the part where you trigger the autist because, you know, it's like, yes, the energy doesn't, <laughs> doesn't ever get lost, right? So when you're mining it with Bitcoin, that's what all like the excess heat coming off of the miners is doing and like, that's the energy that doesn't get all lost, right? That's the that's the, the thermodynamic laws that you're talking about. But the the Bitcoin itself, right? Like the, the ledger entry, the UTXO that represents the Bitcoin has nothing to do with the energy you put into it. So wicked, you wouldn't say? Would you say it's an indirect capture of that use of energy, or just not at all? Not at all, because I mean, you know, like a, a fifty Bitcoin UTXO from from you know the some of the earlier blocks mined is the same value as a fifty Bitcoin UTXO of someone who's consolidating them now, right? And even if they were just, even if that Bitcoin was just mined now, but obviously the amount of energy required to mine it now is much higher. So there's really no, you know, there's no like direct relation between UTXOs value Bitcoin and the underlying energy required to mine in, right? The only thing that is really true is that going, you know, that throughout time, it gets harder and harder to mine because Bitcoin gets more and more valuable. That's really it, right? I mean, and, and, then, and then the question is, well, what leads? Is it the mining? <laughs> Are more people mining it, making it more valuable? Or is it getting more valuable, causing more people to mine it? And, and that's, that's it's, the age-old question. This is this is where I I believe the human behavior part comes into play because it's all this is where I say it's subjective because all things are valuable to humans in one way or another but if humans didn't exist I mean would it would it even matter nope well that that's also not necessarily true I mean you could have a future where you've got a bunch of AIs like ant you know who are still using bitcoin as money because it is the best money and, and money that, that an AI could actually use. So, I mean, you could have Bitcoin feasibly without humans if you had a bunch of AIs and robotics keeping it going. Um, but I don't know. I mean, who knows? Then another planet's AI, uh, e evolutionary AI, people have left their planet and have approached Earth and, oh, they're spending Bitcoin down here. We can we hodl here, guys. Ant is the most convincing AI I have ever met. I've sat down and had tacos with this dude, and he's very convincing as a human. Oh, you were with one of my surrogates? <laughs> All right, you guys are deep. I'm going to have to start calling Ant Delamain. <laughs> Y'all are big time in the bro science. I'll start calling now. Ant. He ain't. That ain't Ant. All right, now that we've got Ant back, why don't we do some stats? You ready, Ant? He's always ready, Alex. The He's Bitcoin impenetrable force field level is at? Let's see. Right now, I see 410 exahash per second. Uh, 
on the seven-day moving average. It is, let's see, the last block height, 808, oh wait, 808,584. And right now I see, we saw a lot of mempool transactions recently, uh, but right now there's, I'm seeing 456,000, almost 457,000. And that's down quite a bit. Yeah, it's still a lot. I mean, fastest fee right now, I woke up this morning, it was like 37 something. Uh, Right now, 30, uh, 25 sats per V-byte is the fastest fee to get into the next block. And uh, mining revenue in the last 24 hours, about $25 million USD. Interesting thing, though. Um, so, you know, we talk about these. Oh, man. I lost him, too. It sounds like you got a phone call. That was a, that was a, a quick snap out. Yeah, that was a phone well, call. Is that high or low, the mining fees? I mean, it's, it's kind of been like that for a while. I see it up at like 28, you know, 24. It, it kind of bounces around million. Um, I will say, though, you know, I've been tracking this metric, which is like how much of the overall block subsidy per block uh, is the fee, you know, in percentage terms. Uh, you know, especially since there's all this like, like security budget FUD going around and all this other stuff that we've been talking about for the last like year and a half, two years. And so I've been watching it and it's usually around like 4% or 2% of the, of the block subsidy, you know, the, the overall value that the miners are getting from the block, the reward of the block plus all of the fees, you know, like, like what is that overall fee percentage? Sometimes it'll be 2%. 4%. Today, I've seen it 6%. Right now, the last block was 5.9%. Oh this is like God. an interesting metric to see. You know, this is an interesting donut to see. I have it on Time Chain Stats. You can go check it out. It's at the top right. And it's like a, a donut metric that will show you the actual percentage, you know, within the... You can do it two ways. You can either see the last block or you can see the last 144 blocks, which is, you know, basically a day, day's worth of blocks. So it's a really cool metric. And, and today, you know, I, I haven't really seen it high like this. I mean, I'm sure it was, I mean, with ordinals and all that, and I just don't catch it. But recently it's been low and now it's kind of eking up a little bit. I've also been tracking this. And have you seen the, the animated version of that that I've posted recently? I basically track it on a 14-day average, a one-year average, and a four-year average, right? And it's kind of interesting to see the, the dynamics of it. But obviously, when you get spikes in demand or price, uh, you know, the, the shorter time frame will, will spike up, and you kind of see these, like, behaviors that track, you know, market sentiment in general, right? And then just usage in general. You see the the ordinal spike, you know, more recently, but yeah, you're right. It's been hovering, you know, all, all three of those, uh, time frames, 14 day, one year and four year are all hovering kind of between that three and 4% amount. And, you know, I mean, people FUD the, 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 uh, you know, the, the fee, right. Like the, they FUD, like the fee is not, not being able to take over. Right. But I mean, if you're talking about like 3%, okay, and next having 
you pretty much double it overnight, right? Because the subsidy gets reduced in half and then your fees more or less stay the same, right? Unless there's some sort of major catalyst to make them go up higher, which tends to happen shortly after the halving. But regardless, you know, like you effectively get a doubling of the percentage of the block reward attributed to fees overnight after each halving. And you, you start to realize it only takes a few more halvings before the fees, even if they were to stay flat, right? Even if like the fees, let's say the fee rate stays at 20 sat per V-byte and blocks are full, it only takes a few more halvings before the fees start taking over, right? So so fees could stay flat and it would, and they would still take over in a few halvings, you know? So like the FUD I think is pretty, I don't know, like it, it's pretty smooth brain fud right it's like it doesn't really make sense like you just kind of run the numbers yourself and you're like okay well even if the network doesn't get any more adoption (laughs) and like fees stay flat they still kind of take over the the total reward pretty quickly like within you know a couple decades right and in in the time scales of bitcoin i mean that's you know that's nothing right and um and in the meantime uh I, i suppose for you know, this idea of security budget to remain, you know, quote unquote healthy, you would need a doubling of price each epoch, which again, historically, we've gotten much more than a doubling on average each epoch. So as long as we double in price, meaning like next epoch, we're, you know, around 60K and then the epoch after that, you know, in, in five to eight years or around 120K. It's like, come on. It's like, what are, if we're estimating the price is going to be that low and there's going to be less network usage, or I mean, rather, you know, the same network usage. I mean, all these things just don't really add up. So the, the FUD is, is, is pretty dumb. Like it doesn't really make sense, right? You just look at the numbers, you run the math and it's like, okay, what are you guys even talking about? It's like, okay, if Bitcoin fails, yeah, then Bitcoin fails. If Bitcoin, you know, if people stop adopting it and then the adopters start, you know, dropping it because they think that it's a failure, then yeah, Bitcoin fails. But if it just keeps doing its thing and the current adopters continue to use it and continue, you know, treating it as their money, and then maybe even more people treat it as their money because it keeps going up in value, it's pretty clear to me that transaction fees are going to be just fine moving forward. I mean, that's the whole point. And then, like, even today, like right now, uh, so I said 6% in the last block. I mean, that was 41 million sats, basically, almost 42 million sats. Like, you know, more than 11 grand USD by today's, like, depressed Bitcoin price in this bear market. You know, it's like, come on, that's not an incentivize you to mine for that block. And that's at a 6% you know, uh, uh, balance. And we're, at, and we're at pretty suppressed network usage, right? I mean, like, yeah, we've got all the, eh, all the shit coiners minting things on Bitcoin that are weird and spending a lot of money to do it. But I mean, if you've been around for a cycle or two, you've seen how crazy things get when the hysteria hits and people are trying to move around coins at the tops of cycles right? I mean, you can, you can easily see like in the hundreds of sats per V-byte. So you can imagine like a price that's running because we're in a bull market and pair that with, you know, this hysteria of people 
wanting to move their coins quickly and paying a lot to do so, you get these elevated fees that get pretty ridiculous, right? And that in general kind of like just overall, you know, kind of subsidizes. <laughs> it's funny because I'm saying subsidizes and it's not even the subsidy, but but anyways, incentivizes is a better word, uh, miners to continue to mine, right? And I, and it's, I don't think it's going to be any different. I mean, I think, you know, the the dynamics that make Bitcoin valuable and continue to make it more and more scarce are going to continue happening. The current adopters are going to continue using it because we've already figured it out. And there's no reason for us to drop it. More people are going to join the network as the value continues to increase. More people are going to want to use it and pay higher fees. And so there's really no, I don't think there's any legitimate argument against fees not taking over. Yeah, so eleven, so $11,000 in fees in that last block today. And that's not even considering that like all of us are gambling basically that it's going to go way up in the future. Miners included are making that bet, you know. So it's a fiat thing. Can you guys, it's a pointers attack. Yeah. Uh, can you guys estimate how much would transaction revenue be uh, compared to if, if we didn't have all these ordinals clogging up the network? It's impossible to know because when you get an elevated floor on fee rates it tends to make everyone else like overpay so if ordinals weren't here i mean we'd probably have we'd probably have cleared you know we we'd probably have mempools that are, that are getting cleared right i mean we're, we're still yeah. kind of in the bear market coming out of it i bet the mempool would be clearing regularly without the ordinal junk so i don't know i mean um in that case it would just be you know, minus 5% or or 3% or whatever the fees are, you know, relative to the subsidy. It would would basically be all subsidy without the ordinals, right? Meaning the non-ordinal transactions that people want to do, they're pretty patient. They're not as time sensitive. They're they're happy to wait. Or 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 they're just, or they're making fewer of them, you know, like they're being more strategic and efficient. Like I, I know like whenever the fees go down enough, I'll I'll start to do some consolidations so that my future, you know, fees will be fewer and whatever. So like I'm I'm already starting to like try to be as efficient as possible on chain with my spending behavior. And I feel like other people are starting to catch on to that as well. I think there's like two myths that we need to talk about with the sort of like um, with the subsidy being less and having happening. There's two concerns that people have. The first is that um, miners will stop mining as if there's nobody mining. And the other one is is really security because there's less miners who are mining. It's easier to attack. So in both instances, I just feel that it's, it's not a done deal. So I, I'm not sure that's even possible. So the fact that there's less miners, um, in theory, if you have more like miners that are attacking, then that's that's just only like that's only talk. I don't believe necessarily that that can even actually happen because um, it has never happened, right? So right now we're just thinking from our sort of like all the information that we have that this is a possibility. But the other thing for sure is. Mining will still continue going on, and that's why the difficulty adjustment that exists allows for people to continue mining. So mining will always, always happen. I think the, 
the concern would be regarding the security part is if it can be hacked or not, but it's 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 not clear cut that it's possibility. Um, that, 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 but I think those are the two concerns really that people have. Um, and, and miners are like, okay, they're not getting enough subsidy to mine. It's not they're not incentivized to mine. This, this is the, the the beauty of Bitcoin, right? the balance that exists. That hey, you don't have to mine. Yeah, go ahead and stop. Keep stopping. The more things, um, the more miners that stop, the difficulty adjustment lowers, and then other people can mine. And so. It's just a beautiful balance that exists. So I'm not too concerned about what's going to be happening uh, in the upcoming halving, but it would be very, very interesting, right, to see how this this whole ecosystem reacts when that that, that actually happens in April or May next year. Yeah. So there's a there's a really interesting uh, video from a professor. I don't know where he's a professor at, but he has a YouTube channel called invalidate block and he put out a video um, a couple weeks ago called bitcoin security model is a curve not a budget or a hash rate and it, it, it actually is like a pretty interesting way of thinking of it um so you know g- google that or, or type it into youtube and you'll you'll find this video you should watch it because it's a you know it's kind of a, a different way of thinking of it right but the basic idea is that you've got this curve representing the profitability of miners and bitcoin security is it's okay as long as you've got kind of like a certain amount of the curve in profit but if you start to get to this like long tailed curve in a potential future where you know there's not very much revenue and you've got a ton of miners out there who become unprofitable then the concern is well you know, all those unprofitable miners could be bought for pennies on the dollar by, uh, you know, uh, 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 someone who's trying to attack the network, and then they could turn them all on, and it would represent more than fifty-one percent of the hash rate, right? And they would be mining at a loss, but they would still have enough hash rate to attack the network. So, I mean, you know, that's that's kind of the adversarial thinking there. Um, and it is an interesting way of thinking of it. So you should definitely check out that video. It's him with like a, you know, just with a, a chalkboard <laughs> as a professor does talking about this. Uh, again, it's Bitcoin security model is a curve, not a budget or a hash rate. It's, yeah, check it out. Yeah, here's what's going to happen at the having. Nothing. For you, nothing. Like you're just going to be there and then it's going to happen. It might happen while you're asleep and it's just like nothing's going to happen. Or you might be watching it from your desk and like nothing happens. But then what you're going to see over time is like Wicked said, there's there's already bound to be now like the acquisitions of the smaller people who are going, well, I can't we're not going to be able to make it. You know, uh, they're already looking to be bought out, uh, trying to get some kind of return because they're leaving. And then there's going to be uh, some of these bigger company, uh, bigger mining people are going to get bigger because of that. And then down the road, you're also going to see the exchanges suddenly get hit with, I say suddenly, the supply shock that occurs after that. It takes a while. It takes like five or six months historically. Doesn't mean that's what's going to happen like in this, in this instance. I mean, we're, it's, it's game on until it's not essentially in this space. But like, that's the way it's been. And then suddenly it goes crazy. It has gone crazy. 
So I, I would love to see that again. I've, I've sat there and watched it. I, I literally sat there and watched it the last time with my wife. We were there and it was blowing up in December 2020. And we had sat there the whole four years grinding it out and like believing and stacking and reading. And, and then finally, it was like back to the point of the all time high and then way higher takes time though it's not going to happen at the having that's going to be like non-event to you guys so take for example remember the china ban on mining and all the miners had to shut down and i guess move to wherever they wanted to go to the usa etc that was a pretty substantial shutdown of mining do you guys remember how many percentage of the hash that was shut down over half i think yeah Right. That's huge. Right. So imagine if that's half, if someone was um, nefarious, they could have sort of planned or knew about this shutdown and already um, do something to maybe attack the network. Why didn't that occur? Well, the, well, the, the miners weren't necessarily available for sale, even though they shut off. Right. A lot of them just moved, picked up shop and moved somewhere else and turned back on. But they didn't necessarily change hands of ownership yeah i just think um a lot of it is just theory and saying hey this is a possibility of how attacking the network can happen but in actuality when a situation like what happened with the chime like uh, to execute such an attack to do all of that it's a, it's not an easy feat so there's a lot of things that have to be coordinated timing resourcing people who are available like who's gonna want to do that just to temporarily halt maybe with empty blocks the network for what let's say one day or something right what, what is that going to solve while you expending so much money so to me i think it's good to kind of talk about this too so we're aware because that's what bitcoiners are we're very vigilant about situations and we make sure everything is accounted for but um I think talking about it's healthy, but it's not something to be so like overly concerned about. And uh, I think there's a lot of this sentiment that all oh, people are just so fearful. Oh, oh my gosh! And so they they you know they have led us hands. You know, that's that's all I gotta say. Well, and not not only like so if they were if they were you know attacking the network by mining empty blocks and not processing any transactions. And that, in effect, would, I mean, can you imagine what the fee rate in the mempool would be if there was literally no transactions being processed? It would explode. It would go into thousands of sats per V-byte. And if you don't think that would incentivize more mining, more hash rate to come online, right? I mean, everyone would be turning on their fucking, like, S9s <laughs> they've got sitting on shelves collecting dust because they'd be profitable again. So, I mean, hash rate would just explode at that point. And there you go. Like, you know, the 51% attacker has just thwarted themselves so it's almost like it's you know it's, it's one of these it's actually one of these beautiful um like another one of these beautiful equilibriums that bitcoin has that just naturally resolves itself just like the difficulty adjustment right you get a 51 percent attacker who is trying to mine empty blocks by attacking the network and all that does is it makes mining more profitable for everyone else who concludes <laughs> those transactions and other blocks 
and it brings more hash rate online and then towards the 51% attack. So it's like, you know, it's, it's an equilibrium that happens without the, you know, without the, the, the fucking need of any central planning or any human intervention. It just works just like everything else in Bitcoin. There's a few things that would happen in this scenario. This has been talked about for a long time, this empty block DDoS attack. Uh, the reality is uh, there's already an RPC command, invalidate block. And I mean, of course, you know, we would all have to invalidate the blocks, but I mean, we would be incentivized to do so if there was some, you know, shenanigans happening like that, where it was just like ongoing block, you know, in, uh, empty block, empty block, empty block, empty block. Eventually, I mean, you don't even have to have a change. We, we, we would, right, we would just have to like invalidate those blocks. So, I mean, there, there's ways around it. That was the fastest I've ever heard Ant talk. I think his network slowed and then it caught up. Uh, I don't know. Kind of seems like we struck the, the the proper autism nerve. I think. Hey, Ant, are you still on DSL? Or what's going on here? This is it. This is twenty four hundred baud baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The other thing you have to uh, remember is even if someone has more than fifty one percent of the network, it doesn't guarantee that they're the one who solves the next block. So there's just so many factors that have to come into play for that sort of supposed attack to be even be possible. Yeah, but but Tao, on average, I mean, think about it, right? If you got 51% and you, what you could actually do, you don't even necessarily have to broadcast the block when you find it. You just find like the next, you know, it's like out of the next 100, you're pretty likely to find the next 51 or even out of the next 1,000, you know, you're pretty likely to find the next 510, right? And so what you could do is you could just like hold on to those and build off your own chain. And then once you, once the other chain hits a thousand, you just reorg, you know, all of them with your thousand and, and 20 that you found in the meantime. So, I mean, that would cause pretty fucking, that'd be chaotic, right? If you reorg a thousand blocks, you could do that though with 51%. You could do a pretty, pretty massive reorg. So I'm not sure about the sequencing of that even being possible because, like the the, the nodes already have the the um, node the node follows ranking. the longest chain Nakamoto's right. consensus. So I mean, if if they if they were mining at the same time with more hash rate than the rest of the network and not broadcasting their you know their 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 blocks, then they could, in theory, just keep mining for as long as they wanted. Right, and they would be building a chain in secret that is longer than the other chain, and then at whatever point in the future, right? And I mean, someone could be doing this now, and we wouldn't we wouldn't necessarily know it. I mean, obviously, it's very very unlikely, but yeah, someone could be doing this now, building another chain in secret that's longer, and then basically they could just broadcast that and reorg everything, you know, up to the point when they first started uh, uh, conducting the secret attack. Right. So it is. It is. It is technically possible, but it's it's just practically infeasible. Wicked! It's not Halloween yet. You're right. You're talking about like a segregated network that has a no combination of miners and nodes, right? Based no, on no, no. Just the miners well. building. Tao, you don't even like you just the miners building on their own version of the chain, and then they don't broadcast. You know this this longer chain until some point in the distant future, and then they reorder. The Explain the infeasible part. Why is it infeasible? Well, because the Bitcoin mining network currently is already using such a, a 
enormous amount of energy that it'd be pretty <laughs> it'd be it'd be next to impossible to pull this off without like someone leaking the information somebody would notice realizing. just from yeah 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 and and not to mention like you know you would need to acquire all the hardware so there'd be like a massive shortage and people would be like why is there a shortage i don't see you know i don't see those chips going into like anything that you know that that's that's being declared so like where are they all going Right, so Wait, I mean, there, yeah, like, it'd be, there'd be some like, pretty obvious signatures if it was trying like, to be had. Wicked, it'd be it'd be like a, a private company just like gobbling up all of these chips and all of these ASICs and having massive energy bills just going into this black hole sink of information. People like you, you're telling me that people and Bitcoiners wouldn't be like, who in the hell is this company and what are they doing? Because we're like, whatever they're doing, you're telling me. They're, yeah, they're they're accumulating all these miners and purchasing all this power, and the hash rate isn't like commiserately going up. Like, what's going on here? Yeah, that's that, that's the part where I was talking about. Now, Bitcoin is so vigilant about just being aware of everything that's you know all the movements of you know this ecosystem. But um, the other thing I wanted to actually talk about real quickly is. What was the reaction from the previous happenings, right? Would, wouldn't this conversation also come up and say, hey, having's coming up and miners are going to get less um, subsidies. So I'm sure this conversation has been talked about many, many times or every having this has come up. So this is really just another, you know, hash of that, right? No pun intended there, but, you know, we're just talking about it. Same thing again. Is it because it's less, even less, less, but... It's the same concept, right? It's having and um, miners will get uh, half of the subsidy and aren't going to shut down and we continue to make all-time highs. So let's see what's going to happen in this having. Yeah, but this generation hasn't had a chance to talk about it yet. This is when we when this, when this it starts to pick up. And then like the big news articles come around about the minor death spiral that's coming. And that the miners are all going to turn off and that, like, you know, we can't support the network anymore. And that, you know, it costs actually less to to like it costs more to actually mine a Bitcoin than it's even worth and all this other garbage that they put out. Get ready. I'm so excited. Ready. I, love the FUD. I love the FUD. Yeah. I think you guys should be scared. Yeah. All of you guys, you guys should be scared. And, you know, because I do need some cheap corn. So please help me out here, guys. I'm, I'm scared. I'm scared of, of, of expensive Satoshis. That's what I'm scared of. And very sad to think about those things. All right. Want to welcome Eric Kaysan to the stage. Good morning. Thanks for joining us, man. Good morning. I have shitty internet, so I might cut out. So I apologize if that happens. Okay. Here, here. Uh, we've got Dylan connect, uh, Dylan LeClaire reconnecting, apparently. Um, wanted to hear from him if he had something to weigh in on, but we will continue. Cool. I'm more apt to blame Twitter than your guys' internet nowadays. That's Not generous. Everything. Well, if, if Eric gets cut out, it's definitely Twitter censoring him because he's one of the uh, the rowdiest, most belligerent, irreverent individuals in all of Bitcoin, I think. I'm belligerent? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell a quick story. So the first time I ran into Eric Kaysen was uh, at a Bitcoin day, I think. And it was in... Um, 
Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And I was in this room and Eric was talking and he was one of the most passionate dudes I've ever seen talk about Bitcoin. And he was laying it down. And I'm looking around the room going, holy crap, who is this guy? That was a good time. Sioux Falls. That was a good time. Interesting place. Well, thanks for, for having me on here this morning, you guys. Uh, I heard you guys talk about the mining death spiral. It's uh, it, it's great that Bitcoin has its eternal September of that. You know, the, these will eventually become rituals and festivals for anybody who who's new that comes in. So everybody will have to deal with, you know, dealing with the bullshit story of the mining death spiral and that Bitcoin wastes energy. So we got to turn off our miners and that the whole industry is going to die because nobody understands what the fuck is going on. It's good times. <laughs> All right, Eric. So for those of you who don't know, real quick, Eric has been around for a long time, started dabbling in Bitcoin around 2012, I think. Um, yep. Did the Coinbase thing for a little while, left in 2007, started writing all kinds of essays. And uh, I consider Eric to be one of the deeper thinkers in bitcoin that's my opinion but some of the things that you've been talking about lately that i'd like to touch on if it's okay with you also i heard that you wrote a book we'll get to that here in a little bit but you tweeted out the other day eric this was earlier in september i think i don't care about mass adoption what i care about is an intransigent minority who steadfastly refuses to participate in a fiat slave economy that props up an infinite war machine those are the only people i care about adopting bitcoin yep i i is awesome I have a very vanguardist uh, approach with my belief towards adoption. Uh, like it's individuals like us who are actually having dialogues about what Bitcoin is and how it can allow for a life outside of the general fiat economy and the debt slavery that we all have to live under. Uh, and I think by essentially us educating individuals in the masses about why they should give a shit about Bitcoin and why it's specifically different from all the other scammy bullshit in crypto that people start to actually get like, oh, like the point of Bitcoin isn't number go up. Like the point of Bitcoin is like, don't go into gulag when like they shut down bank accounts. Um, and so like I, for me, like the the mass adoption and like the nice like liberal dialogue of like, this, this is like good money that will, you know, help protect and keep everybody's human. No, like the, this is about the government wants to fucking steal from you and they're going to do it and they do it illegally and they do it unconstitutionally and there's nobody that'll stop them. And this is the one thing that you can do to actually defend your money in a meaningful way. Uh, anybody outside of those sort of more radical dialogues, I'm, I'm just not interested in it. Like, I don't, I don't give a shit about the fact that, you know, maybe Bitcoin will be $150,000 next summer or any of the macro stuff. And it's not to say it's not interesting. It's just my, my focus is entirely on the political prerogative that is Bitcoin. And people will say Bitcoin's not political, but like that, that's the irony about it is that like it's depoliticization of the entire monetary system is the most political thing that there is. Because today the monetary system is totally politicized in a way that is absolutely unimaginable 100 years ago. So it's really important to understand that it truly is the most important political task that there is. 
And it's because it neutralizes money in a way that we've never seen before. So, uh, yeah, you know, and like, good luck for the masses. But like, I'm not, I'm not interested in having that same remedial second grade conversation of like, it turns out the dollar is not backed by gold anymore. Oh, my God, how is it possible? Yeah, I know that still happens. (laughs) Most people still think it's backed by gold, actually, if you were to go ask random people on the street. A lot of people would think that. Yeah. And it, you know, it, this is sort of part of my pedantry is that like n- nobody's even making attempts towards thought anymore. And so, like, trying to go to the masses and like convince them that Bitcoin's the greatest thing ever, like, it's just, it's just not going to happen. They just don't have any of the scaffolding of thought available to actually understand why you would need a self sovereign, independent money. And like why that's the most important thing in today's day and age where everything has gotten politicized, um, you know, like they'll come to it on their own. And so in my my imagination, you know, uh, essentially I'm talking to the vanguard of Bitcoin. They're the ones who understand the mission and the task. And it's to, to deepen and encourage that dialogue in a meaningful way. So that's really what my focus is. And that's what a lot of my work is about. And my book, Crypto Sovereignty, is really about sort of exploring the these different more esoteric topics of bitcoin of you know like what exactly is sovereignty uh like what is the topological space that we call the internet like what how how does cryptography empower us individually in new and radical ways that has never been done before and understanding that in the total historicism of like what the story of war is to man and why cryptography itself was developed as an art of secrecy within that and these are all very important questions if we actually want to have a true philosophical understanding of like what the purpose of Bitcoin is and why it was designed as such. So with, with that framing, I mean, what do you think of, you know, the Black Rocks of the world getting involved in Bitcoin and how do you think that's going to change things or, or do you think it's, it could, it's even possible to change things? Like, can they, uh, can think, they change it in a way that I, makes it I, not I, what you think it is? I, yeah, I, I totally think that that's a possibility. Uh, I think that it would be a highly combined attack kind of on all fronts of where there's going to be propaganda. There's going to be a fork. There's going to be public company takeover. And like, it's all going to sort of happen at the same time. And to me, again, like that's why this vanguardist approach is so important is that being pedantic about you need to own your own keys. You need to understand, you know, how multi-sig works. You need to understand how single sig with passphrase works, how, how all the different methodologies operate and understand that the self sovereignty that is found in Bitcoin is fundamentally because we can use it on a base level protocol. Like if, if you're using custodians, if you're going through your 401k, if this is done in a Roth IRA, like these are all already captured mechanisms. And it's not to say that they don't, offer value to the general development of the Bitcoin ecosystem. But like when push comes to shove, if a government's hunting you, like you're, you're not going to be like, Hey, like time out, time out. Like I didn't realize you guys were coming to kill me right now. So, so like, let me, let me get my Bitcoins out of my 401k. You know, like it's really important to understand that like when you're being pistol whipped and having your fingers cut off, that like your 401k isn't going to do shit for you. And on that note, like, uh, it's pretty laughable if you think that like we're going to get to like that end window where like you're going to get all the tax savings on your 401k or, or that like you're even going to get social security at this point in time. 
So just like be warned that like all of your like fun shell games that you play about the taxes and shit, uh, like it will come collapsing down in the end when they obviously can't manage how fiat money is being printed out at an exponential rate. So ju- just be aware and attentive of that. So I, I do think that like we're coming into the then they fight you phase and the Black Rocks and the Carnegie Mellon, you know, like all, all of the different institutions that we already know are going to be on the other side of the field are, are like assembling right now. And like their attack is probably going to be kind of retarded. Um, and it'll probably, well, it'll be retarded similar to the block size wars. It'll, like it'll, it'll be obviously stupid. There'll be an obvious cabal of individuals trying to work together to like manipulate Bitcoin for their own point. And it's going to be plebs that are going to need to kick their teeth in utilizing some formula of, you know, whether it's a user activated soft fork or a user resisted soft fork or anything in between, there's a lot of potentiality for, for how we can fight back. And the best is, is, you know, we have the transparent nature of the network. So even if they do mount a 51% attack and get themselves going, we can see that there's a gigantic entity that sucks that we don't want involved. So we can just work from there. And the dance continues and eternal September goes on. Exactly. Dude, getting getting pistol whooped and the fingers cut off at the same time, that, that would definitely suck. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, you know, people give me warnings that I got to shut my mouth, which they're probably right. I, I really do run it a little too much. And I'm sure after a few few good rounds of pistol whipping and being doused in gasoline and threatened, I, I'm, I might become a good little citizen. So uh, watch out for when I start shilling for my... Uh, you know, centralized exchange service. You know, I've been compromised. Well, well the, count your fingers. This this highlights the importance as well. I mean, if you're if you're in this adversarial you know, train of thought, like having a multi sig that's geographically distributed, where you literally can't give away your Bitcoin if you're getting pistol whipped and your fingers cut off. It's like you know. I mean, yeah, it would suck because then you get pistol whipped and your fingers cut off. But at least you wouldn't lose your Bitcoin at the end of it. We all know how intelligent criminals generally are, so I'm sure after they've cut off two fingers, they're gonna be like, "Huh, like this this guy really doesn't have his Bitcoin. We better just give up." No, I'm I'm pretty sure I'm gonna lose the whole hand, but um, I but, mean, but at least you like won't lose the Bitcoin after losing the hell hand, you know? Because I mean, you you, well, the, you could either lose the whole hand and the whole Bitcoin, or you could uh, lose the whole hand and and hopefully keep your Bitcoin and your life, but maybe not your life. I don't know. Well, I mean, this is one of the things that's really cool that uh, stuff like Miniscript is actively working on is that like there starts to become methodologies to do uh, like dead man switches uh, and time locks in specific ways. Uh, like we're, we're really actually, in my opinion, just starting to get to like some of the, the more cool engineering stuff that can be done. Because like these are like quote unquote smart contracts. And like, I, I hate using that word cause like they're not smart. They're, there's very limited parameters of what can be done, but in the limited amount of those parameters, because you know, like nothing's turning complete here, there's a real possibility to like make these new tools. So like I envision a world where essentially like someone shows up to pistol with you. The first thing that happens is that money is sent to an end time lock address that one, they can see. And two, they know that the funds that go in that address are getting distributed to essentially a private defense force that is now on their way to find and kill the person that is, you know, threatening you. So they can like, they can use their 20 minutes to like flee or they can use it to like wait for Joe to show up with a shotgun. Um, 
But I think like these are all going to be the methodologies in the future that are actually going to be the important and operable praxis of Bitcoin. And like, turns out that like, this is actually what like the commonwealth of law is. It's, it's so like, when you have money and it's in a collective with other people that you share the law with, like other people will show up and like help you enforce that law, i.e. people pistol whipping you and trying to steal your Bitcoin. You know, like I have a vested interest in helping you protect your Bitcoin in the same way that you have a vested interest in protecting my Bitcoin, which also kind of goes full circle back to like, this is an actual new political collective of a common wealth of ownership. So uh, I think it's all very interesting to see that we're essentially rediscovering the law in the land where fiat has destroyed it. Either way, or Mickey, jump in here. Hey, Eric. Um, <clears throat> so you, you sort of opened with with Bitcoin and the political, right? And I, I'm wondering. It's it seems like Bitcoin is increasingly appealing to like both X Y, or not X Y, the the X axis, you know, left right on the political spectrum. Um, I, I I think I'm seeing to see most politics sort of split on the Y axis with authoritarian libertarian. I I just wanted to kind of hear your thoughts and see how you elaborate on on the political comments from earlier. Yeah, sure. I I think uh, I do see that same split happening. Uh, I find that the conservative elements are seem to be more aware of the values that Bitcoin bring to it, whereas uh, I see the liberal elements sort of being more absorbed in the general authoritarianism that's being pushed by you know that political dimension. Uh, but I think what's actually going to happen is essentially as the general economic crisis that we're in continues to accelerate that split that's going along the Y axis is going to become much more definitive. And I actually think you're going to find people who are pretty far left on the, on the progressive side and people who are pretty far right on the conservative side are actually going to find themselves at the table together saying we have a lot more in common with each other than with those assholes in the middle. Um, Cause essentially like the, this is sort of like the orange party thesis is that, Essentially, we're going to get elements of like environmentalism, green movement with elements of the yellow libertarian movement mixing together to create essentially like a new orange party that's going to kind of represent this sort of neo-libertarian viewpoint uh, that like I think within a decade is actually going to become kind of one of the leading political movements just because of how like just look out in the world and how like sort of clownish the entire political landscape is like, it, it is absolutely absurdly ridiculous at how fucking clownish it really is. It, it uh, I, I'm really stunned that we've gotten to this place of absurdity that like the, the prime minister of Canada can threaten taxing grocery stores over high food prices. And like, as, as fucking stupid as insane that is, like, I really want to be pedantic about what, like they did that for 50 years in fucking Soviet Russia. Like, people lived through that shit where they were like, yeah, like, the good government is smart and knows the right price of food. So, like, let's play this game. So, like, be warned. Like, that shit's coming. So I hope that that's sort of a long-winded answer of that. Uh, yeah, essentially, I think the politics is going to become more defined on that Y-axis split and that people are going to find themselves uh, bedfellow individuals that perhaps they never really expected themselves to be. Lizards.
Yeah, that, that's who runs the top half. Like, they are shape-shifting lizard people. I didn't believe that for a long time, but, like, think about it. Like, if they're actual shape-shifting monsters, like, they're going to look just like normal people, right? The but lizards like, no, is what I call, what, what when you reference the assholes in the middle, first thing they can do, that's what I call lizards. Uh, just midwits to me. You know, the other fascinating thing that I have not heard anybody else say, except for you just now, which I thought was really interesting, in this, for those people who are familiar with cyberpunk, you know, there, there, there's this concept of these private security teams that, that can be dispatched to come to your rescue if you get wrench attacked or whatever, right? That is a cool concept. Vivek's out in the audience. If you're hearing this, man, we got to hook up. We got we to figure out a way to create a pin code that will do exactly what Eric just said. It will send a certain amount of sats to a private security team that's going to come and bounce those idiots that are messing with you. The incentives that are kind of shoddy, though, because, you know, they like if they're the ones attacking you, then they're also going to get paid <laughs> while they're yeah, attacking I mean, we're, we're gonna mm, You'd have to set it up. You'd have to set it up so there's a... You'd have to set it up so there's a two, like there's like a two step process. Like the 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 sats go into escrow and they will be released when they successfully rescue you from the idiots who are trying to take it from you. There you go. Is my fifty dollars in Bitcoin enough for that setup to justify it? Not yet. It will be though in the future. All right. Let's let's talk a little bit about Bitcoin versus crypto you used to work at coinbase i'm very curious about this phase of your life because i mean at what point did you start taking the the position that you have now in terms of like everything else is kind of uh it's just a cash grab basically um it was probably late 2016 early 2017 that like i really got that everything outside of bitcoin was a scam because that the ico boom was so full of hope and the, the and like this real the definitive space where bitcoin became sort of bitcoin only that didn't really develop until all the ico boom started happening you know like the the space just wasn't big enough for it so early coinbase was pretty incredible you know like pretty much all the cypherpunks who wanted to do any sort of work around Bitcoin showed up there. And I worked with some, some really interesting and amazing people, but you know, by the time, you know, I'd say 2016 was rolling around, it was pretty clear that the VC crew was going to come in and they also could identify that there was all this other money to be made in the space. Uh, like not to mention like internally, it was just like a fucking shit show nightmare all the time. Like the problems I was dealing with and trying to get solved were very very difficult and i didn't have the sort of engineering support necessary to really fix even a tenth of the problems coming at me so it was very stressful um and for the, the biggest one was just as the block size wars started to develop it became very clear that we were on the wrong side of that uh like internally as you know the support manager i was agitating for our customers saying hey like this this obviously isn't something in the service of Bitcoin or towards the mission of our customers, not to mention with the way that the engineering was set up. I knew that on the back end, doing a chain split was going to be an absolute fucking nightmare. Um, and there was like no, and like I was going to have to take on the full prerogative of what it would mean for our customers. Trap, so I was absolutely fucking opposed to it. Uh, and then the thing that really finally broke 
the back was when Olaf hired me. Like we had a strong agreement that I was like, we'll never do phone support because people will get scammed the absolute shit out of themselves on phone support. And lo and behold, four years later, Brian sets up phone support. Um, so actually my last day, I had a meeting with Brian and it was pretty interesting. Cause he was like, Oh, like, you know, thanks for having worked here for so long. Like, where are you off to? And I was like, I'm just going to kind of do my own thing. He was like, Oh, like, where, why, why are you just picking up and leaving? And I was like, cause I don't ever want to do fucking phone support for Bitcoin. Cause I think it's stupid. And I think like there was, you know, there were seven figure losses when we launched phone support because we we're so fucking stupid. We didn't even buy the Google AdWords for Coinbase support, you know, so people would just call up whatever the first thing would pop up for Coinbase support and proceed to get fucking fleeced. Um, you know, so for me, the big thing at, at Coinbase was I felt like I had really served my tour of duty. I'd help onboard more Bitcoiners onto Bitcoin than I thought was possible. They were moving into a strong shitcoin direction. I was very uninterested in it. I was very angry about how little our voices mattered at all throughout the course of the block size wars. So uh, by October 2017, I had set sail and I was very happy. Uh, you know, I'm like, I had been writing the whole time while I was at Coinbase, but I did it anonymously just to sort of protect my identity in the company. So then I started writing more publicly. Um, a couple of years later, Michael Tanguma heard me ranting on a podcast about doing psychedelics. So he reached out because he had some curiosity. And also at the same time, he was like, hey, we also like really need somebody for this like uh, like management role at Unchained Capital. Like, would you, it sounds like it's a good fit for you. You interested? So I joined them for a while and helped them scale up their team. Uh, and I, I love Unchained. I love the model. Uh, you know, like I specifically wanted to see collaborative custody multi-sig. So when they reached out and I saw that that was their model, I was I was really excited about it. So helped them scale that for a while. And yeah, and just from working in the space, it's really just helped me develop my own thoughts about what's really going on here. Because, you know, anybody who spends any meaningful amount of time in the Bitcoin space can tell that like there's something very, very different that's going on here from any other space that you can find, whether it is, you know, church groups or sports groups or work collectives or startups. Like there is something radically different going on with Bitcoiners. And I'm of the opinion it's that uh, like we're a class of people that's actually dealing with the true nature of reality and like what our existence means versus sort of the entirety of fiat world, which is more or less living inside of a bunch of authoritarian decrees that don't connect to reality at the end. So, um, yeah, there's a little rant about my time at Coinbase in my past and sort of how, how I started developing some of my viewpoint. All right, let's unpack this a little bit. Here's another tweet you did. This was a couple of years ago. I don't know if you remember this one or not, but your tweet was... I'm a Bitcoin maximalist because Bitcoin is the only thing that will save us from statism and can fix the world. If you think any shit coins are even remotely like Bitcoin, you don't understand what's going on or why Bitcoin is important. Talk to us about the, it's the only thing that will save us from statism. I mean, that's a pretty big statement. Yeah, so there's, uh, and like this gets to be like a pretty big metaphysical issue as well, because like to start out, we have to like look at the general topology and layout of modernity. And like, it's very, very important. This is, this is what my talk at Bitcoin Honey Badger was really about was 
like the the way that the panopticon the general surveillance apparatus that the government uses to monitor people the way that it's developed over the 20th century uh it has been developed explicitly to monitor everybody everywhere all the time for whatever purpose it wants and now that everybody has a generalized surveillance device that they carry around in their pocket the actual escape for any like meaningful person of flesh and blood is essentially impossible at this point in time so like it if we are going to defeat statism like it can't be done by people of contemporary flesh and blood like like it has to be in a non like satoshi nakamoto and it has to start from an explicit strategy of cyber warfare and understanding that keeping one's identity cloaked like is the first and the preeminent tactic in order to be able to challenge statism and this is why we had all of the lessons of how digital money was developed before bitcoin and why they all failed because they could both be centrally located and the identities of the people who built them could be established um and furthermore from seeing the way that other people presented their cryptography like you know individuals like we die or others it was also very clear and important that the anonymity function itself offered a sort of uh protecting or shielding so like when you start to put these things together you start to see that that okay we need to have some sort of a cryptographic approach to being able to deal with the forked tongue nature of man and his inability to tell truth which is why satoshi had to unilaterally decide the supply of bitcoin so nobody could fuck with it and the same thing with using proof of work actually proving that you're doing the work towards finding the nonce for the reward as opposed to something like truth, proof of stake where like there is no work actually being done it's just computation so as you pull all of these things together i think one of the other ones that's really important as well is why bitcoin and not some other shitcoin well one bitcoin was the first created two satoshi nakamoto presented it in such a beautiful and beneficial way that i think that that is of a profound and important statement uh and then this is the most interesting one is a lot of times i get uh like privacy coin guys coming at me being like you know we we need privacy on bitcoin it can't do that that's why bitcoin's a shit coin it'll fail because of that no fuck you i want bitcoin to be public money this is very 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 important to understand the reason to have a public money versus a private money is i want public auditing if we're going to have any forms or structure of any kind of governance or organization we need to have public accounting and public accountability Like I have no fucking interest in paying anybody any organizational process if I can't actually look at the chain and see where funds are going and how they're interacting. Now things like Monero, they they have great value for privacy for individual transactions and the ability to make sure that your privacy is protected. That is not what I want to pay my fucking local government in. I don't know what the mayor is going to do with a bunch of private money. I can absolutely see what he's going to be doing with the public money. And to me that's one of the most important things is if we are to destroy fiat it has to be done through a public money it can't be done by a private money and so i think that that's a really important feature that people need to know and understand and then the final component is also just the the big umbrella approach you know to to me bitcoin it's leading in every category and field within cryptocurrency it has the largest market cap it has the most committed and zealotory individuals and most importantly Satoshi's not some greedy fuck 
that got him on my ICO that's just trying to make a buck for himself. And to me, that's the most important thing because to me, Bitcoin is 100% ethical. It is about what do we do in a world of fiat where governments have given themselves the right to steal infinite amounts from anybody for whatever reason that they want. And to me, Bitcoin is fundamentally an insistence of saying, I make a decision to hold my money in something you can't seize anymore. And that's an ethical assertion. Uh, so that was a bit all over the place. So, so feel free to unpack some of that if you, if you want. But that gives you sort of a, a, a bigger overview of, to me, why not only is it just Bitcoin, but why Bitcoin is the, the only reason that we can defeat statism with it and not some other new tool. Well, I could jump in there. So one of my questions regarding the, the privacy and the ability to track where funds are going, does that mean that you're opposed to privacy for payments on second layers, like what would be achieved with ARC, for example? No, no, and I think that this is actually one of the most exciting things is, is that, uh, like, essentially L2, you have the pliability to decide sort of however you want to approach it. And then in addition to that, you know, like, you get pretty good privacy on Bitcoin, even on L1, if you're mixing your stuff pre and post mix thoughtfully, you know, and so like, to, to me, it's more about the opportunity costs that are available, whereas with something like a totally opaque privacy chain, like they're there just isn't any flexibility towards that. And so again, it's not to say that, that one is necessarily better than the other, but I do think that one is necessary, i.e. the public one, if we're going to have a public money for more general organizational purposes, like as we would think of contemporary government. So, um, Right, but, yeah. but in the future when, you know, on-chain is kind of, I mean, obviously, you know, people are settling on-chain occasionally but most most network activity would probably be on second layers at that point so you'd probably pay your taxes you know using your balance on arc to their address on arc and you wouldn't have any sort of on-chain footprint so in terms of like fighting the state with a public money i, I don't know if bitcoin's going to be doing that in the future when most things are being done in second layers anyways right Perhaps. And I mean, it's like, this is one of the most interesting questions, in my opinion, is that like, how is the radical nature of Bitcoin going to get compromised as it develops more and more? Like, is that something the Bitcoin community is just going to be comfortable with? You know, like tomorrow, if it was announced that, you know, eight different states in the United States were going to use Bitcoin as their chosen currency, like, would that actually change the dynamic of how people are view, viewing and using Bitcoin. I don't know, but I mean, I'm pretty confident at this point that, uh, like, let's say there is some major flaw that comes up in scaling, development, culture, whatever. Uh, I feel quite confident that just with the people who have already showed up and with the general ethos that's being asserted, that like, if we had to rebuild stuff from scratch, that like, it, it is a real possibility at this point in time. And, I, and like this also relates back to why my book's called Crypto Sovereignty, not Bitcoin Sovereignty. Is that like, while Bitcoin unequivocally is the most important development of the 21st century within both cryptography, money systems, and law, it's the fundamental technique of understanding why asymmetric cryptography gives us a new and particular kind of empowerment 
and very particularly a new form of sovereignty vis-a-vis the internet itself. So to me, like the, this is much more about the development of an idea whose time has come and us understanding the empowerment that gives us versus very directly what Bitcoin is. And it just so happens also that like Bitcoin was given to us in this most gracious and nearly perfect way by some Anon who today is like the richest person in the world who had the willpower to not only not touch it, but to move away from the project when, you know, the training wheels finally came off. So to me, like all of these things point towards why it's going to be Bitcoin, not something else. Because the, the other one that's really important is from, you know, every single project that came after Bitcoin, I have yet to see a founder present it and maintain the ideals of it all the way through, except for Bitcoin. I, I can't man- mention anything that's even close to it. So I think those are important features. All right. Well, we have a little bit of a pause here in the conversation. Eric, anything major that you want to talk about? Let's do that. Are you also, if you're okay with it, like to open it up for some AMA type stuff, if you're cool with that, let some people ask yeah. some questions from the audience. AMA is cool. Uh, let's see. I'm going to be talking at Bitcoin Amsterdam in October. So if you're in Europe, that would be awesome. And the week before that, I'm going to be speaking at your guys' conference at Pacific Bitcoin, which is over on the West Coast in my hood. So I'm excited to, to get to see people for that one as well. Uh, and I'll just use this as an opportunity to show my book. If you like any of the crazy shit I'm talking about or have deeper interest sort of in the philosophical and sociological applications of Bitcoin to the world, uh, check out my book, Crypto Sovereignty. You can find that on Bitcoin Magazine's website uh, or you can also find it on Amazon. Uh, and if anybody wants to leave me a review, good or bad, please, uh, I'm... Yeah, I mean, to me, this is all just about having a dialogue about, you know, how we're going to actually deal with the endemic issues of both the fiat economy and of how that's affected our culture as well. Bad guy scooter, jump in here. Hey, Eric, yeah, I got a question for you. And I know it's not 100% relevant because from my understanding, you had left already, but I'd love to get your whole take on the distribution of the Bcash with Coinbase during the fork and how that took a couple I can't, can't tell you. I, I was gone, but yeah, okay. they okay. did the distribution. That I, I left in between when the fork happened and the distribution, and that was one of the reasons was it was such a fucking nightmare. I was like, I would rather quit than deal with this. Fuck that. So, yeah, that was my question. It was it was a gong show over there during that whole process, eh? Yeah, I mean, the bat... The, yeah, like one of the things that really put a chip on my shoulder was uh, how much customer service was regarded as being a second class and beneath the rest of the team. I, I thought that was a really disgusting approach. And I'm happy to see how much Coinbase was absolutely fucked up on the customer support side because the executive team never listened to anything that we gave them as feedback, nor did they give a shit about when we came to them with very real and serious engineering issues on their side that they didn't want to fix. So yeah, I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little chafed about it. It seems corporate does this to a lot of uh, smart thinkers. I certainly have experiences myself and a lot of our uh, colleagues. They try to make good recommendations for these companies. And I don't know if they're too big or they're too large or they just can't focus correctly, but uh, they don't no, seem to make those it's, changes. It's all just a fucking ego thing. 
They they think that the these motherfuckers think because they went to a four year Ivy League school and got some engineering degree that they their work is somehow more meaningful or important than somebody who just comes along. You, you know, legitimate customer complaints. I, I was amazed at how many times I would go to, you know, a engineers and say, "Hey, there's a bug in your code," and they'd be like, "Oh no, no, I I couldn't have, I couldn't have shipped something like that." And I was like, well, no, I'm, here's the fucking error code. You definitely did that. So, so anyways, I, I don't want to get into it. I'm, I'm a little butthurt about the whole thing. But, uh, yeah, it, it's pretty sad because I very much believe if you actually listen to your customers and integrate meaningful feedback from them that, like, you'll make a pretty successful company. Like, it's not, it's not fucking rocket science. It just requires you to, like, shut your ego the fuck up when it raises up to, like, do a bunch of shit. So. Do you, think, Go ahead. do you think that we're moving towards a distributed model for the uh, the Bitcoin stuff here in America, or do you think we're still pretty far off from that? I'll say more about what, what you mean by uh, distributed model. So I think more uh, like secondary on-ramps instead of the, the KYC uh, exchanges. Uh, you know, here in America, I think one of the problems is that regulatory at this point in time why subject yourself like why subject yourself to this why not just go to a different jurisdiction that's going to be more friendly and easier for you to set up and you can deal with every america oh god damn it I lost everybody, right? You're back for me. Yeah, you cut I'm, out for I'm me. back. Sorry, that that was my shitty internet. Um, yeah, like I, I just, I think the regulatory structure for the United States is shitty right now, and I think even more important than it just being shitty, uh, like it is, it is difficult to be an entrepreneur in America today, and everything inside of the state is working against entrepreneurs. In addition to the United States treats entrepreneurs as being evil, bad guy capitalists. Uh, and I got to tell you, like, it's fucking scary. It's really, really scary that America is moving in a socialist direction. It is totally unaware of the history of what socialism has done globally. And and like we're fucking America, like we're supposed to be the leaders of all of this shit. And of, of protecting the ability and capacity of Americans to be able to just do fucking business. And we're so far behind on it that uh, I honestly don't know or understand how we catch back up unless we have a full unwinding of fiat and a totally radical political revolution in this country. Which, as much as I hope for, uh, I just don't see it on the horizon right now. Terrence, did you have something? I did. Hey, Eric, good to see you again. Um, my you, question, yeah, my question is um, on the Coinbase stuff. Can you talk? I think I missed it. What was your job there, if you don't mind talking about it? And then um, what advice do you have for folks like us who do have phone support um, for, to prepare for the next sort of bull market besides, I guess, kind of making sure scammers don't 
um, post Swan support and have that launch at top? Yeah, so uh, I started in customer support just as you know, n- normal normal agent, and then I worked my way up to being support manager and then director of support. Uh, like I was dealing with sort of all of the larger legal issues and doing bug triage and agile development stuff by the end. Uh, my advice for for doing phone support is make sure that you have a good thorough system of handoffs that there's a totally Loctite and secure way to make sure that when you are talking with your customers that you know it's them uh and whether that's like doing a handoff or you know some sort of email verification whatever you want uh you know just be aware of all of the places that there are holes and securities for how you know people can get either sim swapped or spear uh and just making sure that you know they have at least two secrets that they're verifying with you when they are calling in uh, you know, like it, it's just really making sure it's a thoughtful process that's designed with both support and security engineering having true stakeholding in it. Because the big problem I found at Coinbase is, is we didn't have any stakeholding in any of the development on the support side. And it was very, very frustrating because they would essentially launch retarded shit. And then we would come back to them two days later after we've lost a bunch of money and pissed off a lot of customers and being like, see all of the dumb shit that we told you not to do. And they'd be like, oh, well, you, gee, or, um, so yeah, that, that would be kind of my best advice for that is just really make sure that your support team has stakeholding in the development process so that when shit like that comes up, it can be integrated in a meaningful and quick way, as opposed to needing to, you know, wait for whatever sprint can integrate it. Thank you. Pivoting real quick to your book, just real quick. Um, I noticed I couldn't find an audible or audio version, and I think you have a good voice. You should just do that if you have time. Otherwise, have Guy Swan do it as an idea. Thank you. That that has been brought up a number of times. Uh, I've been wanting to do the audio book, and I keep promising myself that I'm going to start working on it. Uh, so hopefully I'll do that this week. But, yeah, I've just been dragging my feet a bit on, you know, keeping up with all of the stuff because frankly i just want to lie down and sleep so greg get yourself a nice lab mic and just go for a walk and do it that's a good idea i'm a little afraid about the 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 quality of it but i i'll just i should just give give one shot with it you know i I like it i i like doing the reading anyways so i just got to kind of sit down and force myself to do it All right. We got about nine minutes left in the show. If you are in the audience and you would like to come up and ask a question to Eric Kaysan, go ahead and request to come up. We'll be kind to you. I promise. You can also ask questions in our Telegram group. That's t.me forward slash Cafe Bitcoin Club. Again, t.me forward slash Cafe Bitcoin Club. By the way, if you ever, if you're listening to the pod, you don't listen to this live on Twitter and you hear us talk about nested links, we put all the links in the uh in the telegram group so you can figure out what the hell we're talking about if you're interested in doing that while we're waiting for any further questions i do have a topic i wanted to bring up eric and and get your kind of input on this so i don't know if you're following what's going on with some of these lizards but there's a uh elizabeth warren has got this new digital asset anti-money money laundering act they're apparently getting new sponsors 
And they're following the typical bullshit path of we're here to protect you. When we all know that the amount of uh, value that's actually um, transacted in this space, the, the terrorist financing, the money laundering, yada, yada, funding illegal weapons. This, this is the language that they use. So I'm going to read a quote from her. She goes, crypto is enabling rogue nations, drug lords, ransomware gangs, and fraudsters to launder billions in stolen funds, evade sanctions, fund illegal weapons programs, and profit from devastating cyber attacks. It's so exhausting and ridiculous. But anyway, the, the language that they're using, they're, what this bill apparently is, is uh, or anti-money, quote, anti-money laundering act is supposed to do is it's aiming to take action against non-custodial or unhosted crypto wallets. They're basically looking to tag anybody who manufactures these types of things. They're describing it as software or hardware that facilitates the storage of public and private keys, digitally signs, securely transacts digital assets. They want them to uh, be required to identify counterparties, keep records, file reports, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what are your thoughts on this? And do you think the only path forward in the future is, is another Satoshi-like individual who just posts stuff as free and open source software moving forward? Well, I think first is uh, she can eat shit and that she's a stupid fucking bitch that I want her to keep her hands out of my fucking pocket. Uh, and she's also a scumbag and a violent sociopath. Um, and furthermore, the first of the crypto wars and the court cases that came out of that already unilaterally made the decision that cryptography is not a munitions of war, that private citizens are entitled to hold that. So, like, I, I just don't see how whatever bullshit she's trying to hux can ever get past, uh, you know, any sort of a, a Supreme Court ruling, because it's pretty clear to me that it is unconstitutional. Uh, and then also just like everything she said about crypto is right. It is enabling all of that. And like my question to her is what's the difference between Bitcoin and crypto? And then she can't answer it. And we like laugh at her and point at her about like how fucking stupid and remedial she is. Uh, and like at the end of the day, like I'm not interested in fighting governments uh, because they can't fight us. Like they're, they're grasping at straws and air. Like all that we do is continue to build what we're building to show people how to utilize peer-to-peer -peer free and open source software and governments can struggle as much as they want against that but they're losing i i think it's the second to last chapter in my book it's called the theory of the crypto partisan it's an adaptation of one of uh carl schmidt's final essays called theory of the partisan where he, he essentially explains how and why the development of uh like guerrilla warfare and partisan warfare will become sort of the preeminent story of the latter half of the 20th century which it did and that's why we saw you know like the mujahideen in afghanistan why we saw a number of other partisanal movements such as uh you know in vietnam it was really a, a wider general partisan movement and so i think the same tactic is actually going to be applied to the crypto sphere in terms of, of cryptography and what the internet is capable of 
And Satoshi was the first to really show that, like, if you launch a thoughtful, free and open source software, that, like, it can be a very successful project. And now that this economic base is established, like, I'm super excited to see all kinds of crazy software that people are going to develop. And, and like, another important one is, is that, like, uh, like the darknet markets were like a sincere and thoughtful technological development that like did something really important. Like the advancement of drug markets unequivocally was like one of the most important things that have happened in the 21st century. Like the fact that I can go on the internet, look up drugs that have been reviewed and, you know, ha have good reputation for the individuals that are selling them and that they, I can get them to mail them to me like that. That's phenomenal compared to the 1970s where you had to show up to a skeezy alley and maybe get shot to try to get your drugs. And like whatever your feelings about drugs are or are not, like that is an actual market, whether you call it black or not. And to me, like this is one of the most important things. Like I've, I'm absolutely amazed that nobody has made uh, like an only bits yet. So that, like like the only fans thing is fucking insane to me that some asshole gets to exploit all these young women selling their body for like a large chunk of their share of revenue. When like the same model would be so much more effective through like a streaming Bitcoin model that like can't be stopped. And there's thousands of different business models like this, where you'll be able to build a business inside of the internet, protecting your anonymity and not needing to, you know, get absolutely hammer fucked on taxes. But it's going to require a very different approach. And I think we're seeing that development now. And it's going to be, you know, another couple decades of just building all of the different industrial standards that will end up transforming the Internet on a whole to essentially make it into a gigantic free and open source software project. Mr. Scooter. Oh, so Eric. Question in regards to that, we've seen Satoshi release code that can't be stopped, and certainly you're referring to some more of those types of events happening in the future, which I think certainly will take place. Um, my first question is in regards to the, the developers in the space that are making landmark uh, improvements, and then, I guess, kind of disappear, like Nikolai, who... Uh, got caught in that riptide in Puerto Rico. Um, do you think that there is a threat? Do you think there is a real threat to developers in the space at all? Well, um, yeah. Did Nico get caught in a fucking riptide in Puerto Rico? Like, come on, man. Like, yeah. So, <laughs> so you think that's just riptides? You don't think anyone's going after any of the developers? I, I think 100% people are going after the developers. And if you're developing anything under your real name that can be connected to your identity, like you should probably be worried. Um, and like, look, I get that this is a scary and unfair thing and it's totally unconstitutional and illegal and it's still going to happen. Um, and I think like this is why what Satoshi presented in his own development and how he used perfect forward secrecy is so important that like, Developers really are right there at the edge. Uh, and as and as much as I want to celebrate and honor and cherish that, like, dudes want to stand up and do it under their own names, uh, you know, like, similar to how I'm writing, I also want to point out that, like, you know, people, like, me getting thrown in the gulag is okay. Like, I just write fun essays. But, like, developers who are building really important free and open source software tools, like, 
like we we like need you 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 like can't go to the gulag so like please be thoughtful about your approach and development and you know like really make sure that you're up to snuff on your security because i don't want you leaking ip somewhere and, and you know having the popo come smash your door in because you made a great piece of software that protects people's identity so so yeah like be warned or you will find yourself in a riptide in Puerto Rico that you will not get out of. Okay. And one more question for you, Eric. Uh, we're, we're discussing, I guess, some of these, these improvements that can be made by the peer to peer space. Uh, and certainly Satoshi disrupted finance and, and the torrent technology disrupted data sharing. Uh, what other areas of the existing marketplaces uh, and commerce you think can still be or, or disrupted by peer-to-peer -peer technology? Oh, hell, I mean, throw, throw a rock and you can find it. Uh, like what we're seeing happen with NoStar versus uh, like Twitter here is a great example of it. But I mean, like across the board, we need to, to see a decentralized eBay and we had uh, like Open Bazaar, but that didn't happen. This is kind of one of the funniest ones too, is that like, I think pretty much all of the projects that will get developed have already been made and failed earlier because they were just too early. And Open Bazaar is like a perfect example of that. And there'll be something that will work with that. Same thing with NoStar, you know, like there was, uh, what was it? It was the... Keybase, I think, like for like a chat one before No Star, same thing kind of failed, went shitcoin direction. Um, and there's a lot of these other projects that do the same thing. Like they'll they'll like make a project with a shitcoin on and it'll fail because of that. Whereas if you just like essentially dump the shitcoin and integrate Bitcoin, it could be successful. So like I to me, like this is this is the most exciting thing about entrepreneurs in Bitcoin is that like the world is your oyster. You literally get to redesign the entirety of the internet and like just take your pick. What do you want to build? And, and like, go build it. Because if you just build and commit yourself to it, you will be successful in the long run just because so few people are looking at it. Um, so, yeah, like, I, I'm, you know, hell, whether it's distributed book publishing or, uh, God damn, you know, like, like I said, it's really everything. Because in my opinion, the entire internet needs to get rebuilt on this free and open source software model where essentially instead of you paying a corporation and the government, you're just going to be paying the individual that has built that software and is helping maintain it. But we'll, we'll see, you know, uh, it, I, I just hope I don't get, get thrown in the gulags for all the crazy shit I say. I hope you're able to avoid those riptides, sir. We're out of time. Ladies and gentlemen, Eric Kaysan. Eric, I want to thank you for helping us reinforce our explicit content rating on iTunes. Nice. Yep. I'm always happy to uh, get you guys flagged like that. <laughs> I'm messing with you. Totally love you, bro. Thank you for being here. Do appreciate it. Love you too. All right. You guys have a great day. That's the show. Uh, a couple of quick things. Bitcoin veterans is being recorded tonight, 7 PM Eastern. Follow the Bitcoin Veterans handle for notifications of when those drop. Pacific Bitcoin, I'm going to be going to the pleb party. I hope you are too if you're a cafe Bitcoiner and attending Pacific Bitcoin. Let's meet up there. It's going to be good. You've been listening to Cafe Bitcoin. 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 <laughs> the place for your morning news. Preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry. Also a podcast on Fountain, Spotify, and Apple. Thanks to Swan Bitcoin, the sponsor of the show. My crew, Ant, Peter, Sats for Life, Wicked, Dom Bay, and producer Jacob. I appreciate you guys. I'm your host, Alex Danzig. Work with Swan. If you want to know more, shoot me a DM.
Thanks again to the speakers who come on here every single day and the regulars and the crew and everyone who listens. Appreciate all you guys. Get on the mission. Love you guys. Everybody go out there. Have a great day today. Crush it.